open your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter. We will be continuing again today in the third chapter of 1 Peter, looking specifically at the fifth and sixth verses. And it has been our pattern at Christ the King over the last several months since our plant to preach verse by verse through books of the Bible. We started in, I looked, just looked again, we started in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. So we've almost made it through a full chapter uh, since our plant. And, and what this means is that though our songs were a bit different during the season of Advent, our preaching schedule was not. We continued to preach out of the, the epistle of 1 Peter. Chris and Jeremy have determined that the sheep here at Christ the King will be best shepherded with this preaching pattern, and to that I give a hearty amen. Uh, I love preaching through books of the Bible verse by verse. So that means that we won't have a special sermon for Easter Sunday. We won't go to a text that's a, a text about the resurrection, although you can find the resurrection in any text. Um, it means that uh, a brother informed me that today is Racial Reconciliation Sunday, and it means that we will not be preaching a racial reconciliation-specific sermon today. And it means that we won't be having a specific Mother's Day sermon on Mother's Day this year. However, what it also means is that sometimes you get three Mother's Day sermons in a row, just like we are going to have today. Um, that is what the text requires, and so that is where it will lead us. Why would we do this? Why would Chris and Jeremy have this pattern of preaching for us? I think there's a couple really good reasons. For one, you, we've entrusted our preaching schedule to the Lord. And it means we acknowledge that he knows better than we do what we need to hear from his word. Uh, and the second thing, though, is that it allows us to push every aspect of God's word into our lives. Um, we read some of Psalm 119 this morning and heard about the psalmist, how David exalts in the commandments of the Lord. And, and you've, if you've been here for any period of time, you've heard us talk about all of Christ for all of life. And, and what we mean by that is that we want to push the commandments of Christ, what he requires of us, into all of the corners of our lives, that, that he reigns over it all. Uh, Hudson Taylor said, Christ is either Lord of all or he is not Lord at all. And, and that is our belief here, is that he is Lord of all. So this means that, that we will look again at, at commandments from uh, Peter regarding wives and submission to their husbands. This is a particular issue that is of great need in our day. In particular, uh, feminism and effeminacy have crept into the church. It's dominant outside the church, and it has also crept into the church. So this is a message that we need to hear. We need to take three weeks for this. I, I would suspect that no one in this, in this building has heard a, a specific sermon about what Christian modesty looks like. I, I know I never had. And I've talked to several of you about how this text was handled in other churches when First when Peter was preached through, and, and, and some of you have said that it wasn't even addressed, that it was skipped, or that it was maybe taught in one broad sermon, and then you include verse 7 so that you can really hammer on the husbands and just give a little bit to the wives. But the reality is this is a message that is needed for our day so that we might know what does it look like to obey Christ, what does it look like to love Christ in this way. So this is what we'll be continuing in today. Um, and, and it's also important, important because it tells us what, is, what are our stations. Um, the gospel is advancing. The kingdom of God is advancing in the world. And he tells us 
what is the, what is the way that that happens? What are our stations in this battle? So with that, let me open to 1 Peter chapter 3. To, prov to provide some context, I'll be reading starting in uh, verse 1, and I'll read through verse 6. And remember as I read that these are God's words. It says this. I'll be, I'll be reading from the NASB and preaching out of the NASB 1995 this morning. It says this. In the same way, you wives... Be submissive to your own husbands, so that it, even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Your adornment must not, merely, must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also, who hoped in God, used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear." Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I'm so thankful that your word does not return, return void, um, that we could simply read the text this morning and know, Lord, that your word would act in our hearts. And yet, Lord, we long to know, as I said, what does it mean specifically? What are the commands that you have given to wives in regards to submitting to their husbands? And so, Father, would you use me today to make that clear from the text. Lord, I don't bring my own wisdom. I don't bring winsomeness. I don't bring eloquence, Lord. Uh, I simply want your word to be clearly conveyed. Um, it is your word that I long to have remembered and not mine. So would you do that in the hearts of your people now as we come to this important text? Amen. So as an outline, I have three main points for the sermon this morning. The first point is the hope of holy women of old. We'll be looking uh, specifically next at the submission of Sarah. And then after that, we'll be discussing the conduct of her daughters. So we'll start in verse 5 looking at the holy women, the hope of holy women of old. Having provided instructions for what to wives regarding their chaste and respectful behavior and, as Chris mentioned last week, their internal adornment. Peter now strengthens and illustrates his point by providing an example from history of this behavior and adornment. Peter says that this behavior is not something new, but in fact it is, a it is descriptive of the lives of several women from the Old Testament, women he calls holy women. Um, he says that they also adorn themselves in this way, referring back to the behavior that has been described in the previous four verses. He tells us that these women were holy, and the Greek for that is the, the word hagios, and it has multiple meanings. So one, one meaning for this word is that they are set apart. Holiness, holiness hagios, means set apart. Uh, a similar word is used just a, a few verses later in verse 15 of this chapter um, when, when Peter commands the hearers to sanctify Christ in your hearts as Lord. That word sanctify is hagiazo, which is a derivative of the word hagias. So certainly, 
Um, that is part of what's being conveyed here is this idea of being set apart. And in most any evangelical church today, this is likely the, the meaning that would be pressed the hardest, that, that we are the people who are set apart of God because of his imputed righteousness on our behalf. And, and to this, we should say a hearty amen. We should amen the, the reality that we have received. We are set apart as those who receive Christ's imputed righteousness. But there is an antinomian tendency in our day, and that word antinomian comes from two words, antinomos, which means against law. And at its most extreme, antinomianism means, uh, is the belief that Christians aren't required to obey any commands. Uh, and there is an antinomian tendency in our church today um, that will grasp onto this idea of the imputed righteousness of Christ, which absolutely we should rejoice in, but it will do it at the neglect of the practical righteousness that must flow from the heart of any person who has actually received the imputed righteousness of Christ. So yes, being set apart is, is an important meaning of this word hagias, but I think more likely Peter here is describing the righteous conduct of these women. So this is the same word that Peter used in, verse one, uh, in chapter 1, verse 15, when he had described not being conformed to former lusts. And he says, be holy, or hagias, yourselves in also in all of your behavior. So he's discussing behavior when he talks about holiness. Righteous behavior has also been a recurring theme throughout this section regarding submission. He told um, all Christians are encouraged to do right in, in verse 15 of chapter 2 and submitting to authorities. Um, he instructs household slaves also to do right in submitting to their masters. And then later in this text, we're going to see in verse 6, he again says, do right to um, wives when he encourages wives to submit to their husbands, even some, those, some of whom will be unbelieving. So put simply, these women were holy because they lived in a way that was pleasing to God. More than that, though, we see that these women were women who hoped in God. The verb form here indicates not a completed action in the past. So when you see here, hoped in God, it can sound like a completed action, but rather what it's indicating here is that they were women, this was an ongoing action in the past. So they were women who continued hoping in God throughout the course of their lives. And I wonder if I were to ask you, what does hope mean biblically? What does hope in God mean? How would you define that? When we use that word hope today in our current cultural context, it actually conveys quite a bit of doubt. Um, so in my job, I get called in at night sometimes. So I might say, this next week, I hope I don't get called in. Uh, or more seriously than that, when, when asking a person, do you know where you'll go when, you're, when you die, they might say, well, I, I hope I go to heaven. So, so in that, there's, a, there's um, a communication of doubt in the way that we use that term. And, and though the Bible does at times use this way of speaking about hope. Um, for example, Apostle Paul says that he hopes to send Timothy in, in Philippians 2. Um, this is not the idea that is associated with a hope in God that comes from Scripture. So I want to give you a biblical definition of hope. The Greek word is politzo, 
And, uh, and I want to go through a few biblical examples of, um, of what we think we should be thinking about when we think ab about a biblical hope in God. First, it is only for those who are in Christ. Ephesians 2.12 says, Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So only those who are in Christ have hope. Everyone else, they don't have a little bit of hope. They have no hope in the world. The next aspect of it is that hope involves that which is yet unseen. You, you're probably thinking about Romans 8, 24 and 25 when it says, for in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. So hope involves something that we do not yet see. But God also promises that hope is something that does not disappoint. Hope in Him. Romans 5.5 5 says very explicitly, And hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given us. Another way to say this is that it always comes to pass. It is always satisfied. Hope in God is always satisfied. And that's because it is grounded in God's promises, not in circumstances. Speaking of Abraham, Romans 4.18 says this, In hope against hope he believed, so that he might become a father of many nations, according to that which had been so spoken, so shall your descendants be. So Abraham was a man who hoped against hope, because if he had looked at his circumstances, he would have said, I'm way too old, and Sarah is way too old, old to, to have a child. But God had promised him that. And so he clung to the hope of what God had said rather than looking at his circumstances around him. Now, hope is intimately related to faith, but it is also different in some important ways. In 1 Corinthians 13, 13, it says, But now faith, hope, love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. So we see that hope and faith are not exactly the same thing. Certainly they're related, but they are two of these three things that 1 Corinthians 13, 13 mentions as abiding. Hebrews 11, 1 gives a little bit more clarity about how these two relate. It says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So faith involves the unseen in both the present and also in the future, while hope is always future-focused and brings with it an accompanying, uh, an accompanying gladness. I think what John Calvin said about the relationship of faith and hope is helpful here. And he says this, For if faith is a firm persuasion of the truth of God, a persuasion that it can never be false, never deceive, never be in vain, those who have received this assurance must at the same time expect that God will perform his promises, which in their conviction are absolutely true. So that in one word, hope is nothing more than the expectation of those things which faith previously believes to have been truly promised by God. 
Thus, faith believes that God is true. Hope expects that in due season he will manifest his truth. Faith believes that he is our father. Hope expects that he will always act the part of a father towards us. Faith believes that eternal life has been given to us. Hope expects that it will one day be revealed. Faith is the foundation on which hope rests. Hope nourishes and sustains faith. So this is the definition that I have given to biblical hope in God. This is what I think it is. It is the glad and confident expectation of a future fulfillment of God's promises. I'll say that one more time. The glad and confident expectation of future fulfillment of God's promises. But before we move on from hope, I, I want to point out one more specific aspect of biblical hope from some of the verses that we've looked at. And that is that these, this hope in God, the hope that, that the, the holy women of old had, was a hope for God to act in history. So it wasn't some esoteric thing out there, I hope in this being, but they hoped in him and they believed that he would act in history. Look again at Romans 4.18. It says, in hope against hope, Abraham believed so that he might become a father of many nations according to that which had been spoken, so shall your descendants be. So his hope was in God and that God would give him a nation and would give him descendants. Let's look a, uh, a little bit about what those promises were that Abraham was hoping in. In Genesis 12, 2, God told Abraham, I will make you a great nation. Uh, in the next verse, he said, in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. He says, to your offspring, I will give this land. And then in, in chapter 15, when God tells Abraham to look up at the stars, he says, so shall your descendants be. And then finally, after offering up Isaac as a sacrifice, what does God add to this promise? He says this, he says, your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. So God promises a people, a land, and the gates of their enemies. So these women, to summarize, in former times lived in a way that was pleasing to God and had a glad and confident expectation of future fulfillment of his promises in history. And we learn that they used to adorn themselves, it says, by being submissive to their own husbands. So it's saying they used to adorn themselves in the same way that we've just read about in verses 1 through 4. And again, in a similar fashion, the verb tense here implies an ongoing action in the past. So they were continually adorning themselves by being submissive to their own husbands. And again, as a reminder, this submission is to their own husbands. It wasn't the submission of all women to all men. It was the submission of a wife to her husband. Many women from the Old Testament could serve as examples here of, of women who hoped in God. We could think of Rebecca who when provided the choice of staying with her family or leaving to become Isaac's wife, said that she, she said, I will go. She will go from what she knows and she will follow and trust in Yahweh. Or we might think of Ruth who remained with Naomi and then joined, joined herself with the people of Yahweh after the death of her husband. 
rather than returning to Moab and then laying herself at the feet of Boaz so that she might come under his care and be protected by him in marriage. Um, there are abundant examples of women like this throughout the Old Testament. But Peter specifically points us to Sarah, um, Abraham's wife, as the example of a holy woman who hoped in God and adorned herself with submission. I think that she's the one who captures the, all of that very well. And as I mentioned earlier, we're in point two now, um, the submission of Sarah. As I mentioned earlier, the verbs in verse five for hoping and, and adorning um, imply ongoing ash, actions in the past. So Sarah continued hoping and conti continued adorning herself. This was a pattern of behavior for Sarah. So Peter is not just pointing us to that one time that Sarah submitted to Abraham, but to her ongoing obedience to him throughout her life. There are probably some specific examples uh, of Sarah's obedience throughout her life that are coming to your mind now, but, but Peter does focus us on a specific example of when Sarah calls Abraham Lord. Um, so I want to go to that text and look at that text in some detail um, now, and, and that, that can be found in Genesis chapter 15. So let's turn to Genesis chapter 15, and we'll be starting in uh, the first verse. I'm just going to read through and provide some, some commentary on specific aspects of this text. It says, Now Yahweh appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre, while he was sitting at the tent door in the heat of the day. When he lifted up his eyes and looked, behold, three men were standing opposite him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth. So it tells us that Yahweh appeared to Abraham in this case. But it also says that it was in the, in the form of three men. So how do we put these things together? This is Yahweh in the form of a man. So this is something that's known as a theophany. So anytime there is a physical manifestation of God on the earth, um, the technical term for that is a theophany. But I actually would take that a step further because I believe this is a, what's known as a Christophany, which is a physical appearance of Christ prior to the incarnation. Uh, so let me give you a little bit uh, of, of what I mean by that. We all know that Jesus is eternal, that Jesus has always existed, and we know that Jesus is Yahweh. So Yahweh is the name, the covenant name for the triune God. It is not a label for God the Father. So the Father is Yahweh, Jesus is Yahweh, and the Spirit is Yahweh. And we know those things. And, and the scripture is quite clear that no one has ever seen God the Father and lived. You can look, look at Exodus 33.20 says this very explicitly. Uh, we, we know also from Colossians 1.15 that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. So I am convinced, and I checked this with Chris earlier, and he agrees that any Old Testament appearance where God takes the form of a man is a Christophany. So it is a physical appearance of Christ prior to his incarnation. And so that's what we see here is, is uh, Abraham is visited by Christ himself and perhaps two other angels. Um, let's continue in the text. Verse 3, it says, And... Um, and said, so this is Abraham speaking, My Lord, if now I have found favor in your sight, please do not pass your servant by. Please let a little water be brought and wash your feet 
and rest yourselves under the tree. And I will bring a piece of bread that you may refresh yourselves. After that, you may go on since you have visited your servant. And they said, so do as you have said. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah and said, quickly prepare three measures of fine flour, knead it and make bread cakes. What did Sarah obey Abraham about in this text? It was something so simple. It was making bread. It was not this huge ask that he had made of her. He asks her to make bread. It's simple, but it's important. So Abraham's mission was to see God's promises fulfilled, the promises I talked about, a people a land, an enemy, the gates of his enemies. But at this particular moment, that mission means that he needs to host these distinguished guests, one of whom is Yahweh himself. And he says in verse 5, I will bring a piece of bread that you may refresh yourselves. And then he instructs Sarah to make the bread. This was a mission that required a helper to accomplish and you can see in it that Abraham knows he can depend on Sarah. He can say, I will bring you bread, and then he can ask her to make it and know that it will happen. Ladies, I wonder, do you consider the, important, the importance of the tasks that you accomplish each day? There are no unimportant tasks. There are no unimportant stations in the mission of God or in the mission of your family. Ladies, do you consider your making of delicious, nourishing food, your beautifying of homes and of spaces, your setting of inviting tables, do you consider that these are an integral aspect of the advancement of the gospel and the taking of dominion in the world? Do you consider that, that these things that can seem so simple, what if Abraham had promised these men bread and could not provide on that promise? But he knew he could, that he could depend upon her. There are no unimportant stations. I, I remember a story um, that Doug Wilson told about being on a Navy warship. And they were going out to battle, and someone was talking to one of the cooks in the kitchen. And he said, well, I, I don't know. I just cook eggs. It's not that important. I just cook the eggs. But the reality is, without the chef in the kitchen, that ship can't go forward. That ship cannot accomplish its mission if all of the men are starving. Every station is important in the kingdom of God. Okay, let's continue in the text. Verse 7, Abraham also ran to the herd and took a tender and choice calf and gave it to the servant, and he hurried to prepare it. He took curds of milk and the calf which he had prepared and placed it before them, and he was standing by them under the tree as they ate. Then they said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, There, in the tent. He said, I will surely return to you at this time next year, and behold, Sarah, your wife, will have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door, which was behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in age. Sarah was past childbearing. Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I have become old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also? And Yahweh said to Abraham, 
Why did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I indeed bear a child when I am so old? Is anything too difficult for Yahweh? At the appointed time, I will return to you at this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah denied it, however, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, No, but you did laugh. What was Sarah's demeanor here after she had been instructed by Abraham to make bread? Was she bitter? Did she grumble that she was not being included in this conversation with these men? Did she grumble about Abraham's tone or maybe about the fact that he had asked her to do this quickly? No, not at all. That wasn't at all how her demeanor was. Sarah knew her station and she gladly filled it. In verse 12, she refers to Abraham as her Lord. And you see where she is in those, in, in, when she calls him that. She is by herself. She has forgotten that the Lord hears her. And she refers to him as my Lord when she is alone. This is not a show. This is an, a, just such a wonderful example of the adornment of the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit. This is something that flows from her heart when she is alone. This is the internal adornment that we learned about last week. Sisters, I wonder, does your submission look like this? One of the things I will frequently tell my children when I'm pretty convinced that one of them is lying is I will tell them, God knows. I, I can't always know. I won't always know. And I won't spank you if I'm not sure. But God knows. And that's way scarier than, than the fact that dad might not know. So God knows. God sees. Does your submission look like this when it's only you and the Lord, ladies? Does he see you joyfully obeying your husband in both small and large instructions as you help with his mission? Or does the Lord see you sighing? rolling your eyes, questioning, acting half-heartedly, or grumbling. I think a good diagnostic for this is how you talk to your husband, talk about your husband to others. How do you talk to him, talk, talk to others about him? How do you talk to your friends about him? How do you talk to your children about him? But it's more than that too, right? Because it's also how do you talk to yourself about your husband. So sisters, if you're thinking about this and, and you're unsure of whether it applies to you, I encourage you to examine how your submission to your husband has looked recently when it was just you and the Lord. There are likely some of you who have examples coming to mind from this past week maybe the past day even, where you have not submitted to your husband in this way. What do you do with that? It's always important to remember, Romans 8.1, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So if this is you and if you see in yourself this lack of submission, the answer, sisters, is to repent. Repent before the Lord. Repent to your husband. Repent to those who you've spoken poorly to uh, about him if that's necessary, and then move on. De determine to do differently, to not continue in that pattern of 
of thinking and of speech. Um, I think one of the important things with things like this, um, I'm going to get into some examples, and I, and I think it may reveal a lack of submission to some of you. Endless introspection is not the answer. So, so what happens in these cases is that as we become aware of our sin, Satan stands there ready to accuse us. He is there ready to tell you that this pattern has gone on too long, you can't change it. That your children have seen you acting this way towards your husband and they will never think of you differently. And all of that is a lie from Satan himself. So the answer is not to just go in and in and keep looking at this sin, but to look to Christ, to repent, and to move on. So if that is you, I encourage you, confess, repent, and receive forgiveness. Now, I am sure that some of you are wondering, in fact, I've heard this from some of you, but are the wives really supposed to call their husbands Lord? In our day, First, I want you to remember that the focus of the text is the internal adornment. It is not about external adornment. So if you focus on calling a husband Lord, so let's say, for example, you decide you're going to label your husband in your phone, my Lord, but then every time you get a text from him, you roll your eyes, that's completely missed the point. So, so, so that is not how this works. This is not about just an external adornment of let me use this phrase to, to, to check the box. No, this is the internal adornment of the heart. But, but, as we learned last week, the external and the internal adornment are supposed to match. I want to give you a quote uh, that Bill Mounts, who is one of the translators of the ESV Bible, said about this text. He said this, I am more than cognizant of the fact that Abraham and Paul lived in a highly patriarchal culture. I certainly would not want my wife, Robin, to call me Lord or Sir. We have a traditional marriage relationship based on love and trust and respect. But if Robin were to call me Sir, I would see it as a failure to lead on my part. Brothers and sisters, this is what it looks like to submit Scripture to a feminist age rather than submitting the spirit of the age to the word of God. If you look at that quote, what we see from the beginning is he labels Abraham and Peter as being in a, a, a patriarchal culture and he just assumes that's a bad thing, right? But the feminism and effeminacy of our day, these are good things. We know better now. So he brings assumptions in to this before he even makes the statement. I like what Michael Foster says about this text much, much better. Uh, he said it's essentially the opposite. Uh, he had a tweet where he said this. He said, I have a litmus test I use to determine if a man's theology has been feminized. I ask, would it be wrong for a woman to call her husband Lord? They usually say, definitely. And I'm like, you sure? <laughs> Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And what he usually hears back is crickets, so they have no response to that. For a woman who is adorned internally with this kind of submission, calling her husband Lord ought not seem wrong or unloving, even in our day. This clearly does not translate one-to-one -one culturally, but it is a, wife, a way for a wife to verbally demonstrate 
her submission to her husband. So I want you to hear that. It's a, it's a verbal demonstration of a wife to a husband of her submission. So this is actually something that wives frequently do to others already. So they may not be verbally demonstrating they, their submission to their husband himself, but when they talk about things, they do demonstrate their submission verbally. Let me explain what I mean. Um, April will say, uh, my wife April will say, I will check with Daniel. I'm waiting to hear back from Daniel about what the decision is. So that's a way of saying, I'm, I'm in submission to my husband, um, to, to other people. Or when the kids ask her something, she'll say, well, let's, let's see what dad says about that. Dad's going to decide and we're going to do what dad says. So that's a way of verbally acknowledging that submission to others. But brothers and sisters, I want you to imagine a husband who only ever acted lovingly toward his wife, but never told her he loved her. This clearly would not make sense. We accept a wife who submits to her husband without ever verbally acknowledging that submission to him. So, so what am I saying here? Uh, Michael Foster continued that tweet thread, actually, and he said this. He said, every once in a while, my wife will actually call me Lord, though I've never requested her to do so. She says, yes, my Lord. It gets a chuckle out of me every time. So this is something that is not requested. It's not commanded, but it is, it is offered by a submissive wife to a loving husband. Now, ladies, you may be thinking, but, but you don't know my husband. But I want you to remember the context here. Peter is speaking to wives, some wives who have unbelieving husbands. And as I mentioned earlier, when Peter refers to Sarah's submission, he is referring not just to the specific example of Genesis 18 that we just looked at, but to the entirety of submission over the course of her life. So like I said, probably some of you have thought about Genesis 12 and Genesis 20 when Abraham lied about Sarah being his wife so that she was first taken by Pharaoh and then taken by Abimelech. Have any of you ladies had a husband who knowingly put you in harm's way the way Abraham did with Sarah? And yet she called him Lord. But that was sinful, right? Abraham lied and he failed to protect his wife. Should wives follow their husbands into sin? Chris mentioned, and I'm going to say the same thing, uh, a couple weeks ago when discussing this topic that, yes, there are times when a wife should follow her husband into sin. Um, I, Tim Bailey, who is a pastor up in Bloomington, Indiana, a Presbyterian pastor who has a way of saying things. He kind of comes in nuclear and then cleans up afterwards. And I can remember the first time that I heard him say this. I was listening to a podcast, and you just think you know what the answer is going to be. Should a husband ever follow his wife, or should a wife ever follow her husband into sin? And I'm just expecting, no, of course not. And he says, okay, yes, she should. And then he went on to explain it. So some really important caveats up front, okay? There are areas where a wife should explicitly never follow her husband. Chris mentioned two weeks ago, physical abuse. If there is, if a husband is hitting children in anger, or if he is ever hitting his wife, that is unacceptable always. And you need to tell someone about it, someone about it sooner rather than later. And I would recommend starting with your elders. Another area is sexual sin. We know that a, a husband's wife belongs, husband's body belongs to his wife, and a wife's body belongs to her husband from 1 Corinthians 7. And, and church, we have to recognize that as a church who 
has committed ourselves to a patriarchal structure based upon what God has designed. Sexual sin is a target the enemy will use against us, and we have to see that. We have to, we have to root it out and not allow any place for it in our church because this is the ammunition that the world would love to use to slander us. So we have to be vicious against this. Fathers, we have to start with, with this viciousness against sin. We can't tolerate any pornography. We can't to tolerate any sort of inappropriate touching in the home. There can be no room for it. And wives, if that is happening in your home, you must tell someone. You must disobey your husband and tell someone about it. So those are my caveats. You have to, those are areas where never should you follow your husband into sin. But I want to give an illustration to explain a little bit more what I mean when I say that there are times when a wife should, should follow her husband into sin. So I have three related examples that I'm going to give of a wife and a husband. The first, in, in regards to going to church on Sunday. So the first is a, a wife of an unbelieving husband who has been uh, prohibited by that husband to attend, attend church on Sunday. This one's pretty straightforward, pretty simple. She should dis disobey him and go to church. We must obey God rather than man. It's simple. She obeys the Lord and not her husband in that case. But these next two examples will get a little bit more complex because the second example I want to consider is a wife of a husband here at Christ the King. And I want, uh, let's say that this family had a particularly full Saturday um, that maybe they were out at, at Future Men and then they had people over and they were out late into the night and they wake up on Sunday morning and they're tired. And the husband says, you know what, I think today we should sleep in a little bit, we should go to breakfast, and then we should just spend the day as a family, maybe go on a hike together. So, so the first thing I, I want to say about that is, is to do that, church, is sin. Amen. To, f to, de to um, decide not to come to church when you are not providentially hindered, meaning the Lord has decided for you to not come. If you make the decision to not come just because you think there's something better for you, that is sin. So in this case, what should the wife do? I think the wife should challenge her husband on it and push him and, and say, I think we need to be at church. I think that that's the best thing for our family, regardless of how tired we are. But if he pushes and he says no, then I think that she should follow him into that clear sin and she should do, do so joyfully and cheerfully. Now, what's going to happen in that case? I want you to think about this. How many of you have missed church here? and not received a text from somebody about why you're not there. So what's going to happen is the body is going to surround your husband, is going to reach out to him, hey, where were you today? And he's going to have to say, well, we were eating breakfast and going on a hike. And they're going to say, you can't do that. So he's going to hear it not just from you, he's going to hear it from others. But I think the disposition must be towards submission, even if it means drifting into sin at times. Okay, I said there were three examples. So the third one is same husband, and now it's a pattern. Now it's once a month. The husband says, ah, I want to sleep in tomorrow. I don't want to go to church. And he's a covenant member here at Christ the King. At this point, it becomes an issue of church discipline, and the wife should first bring a couple with whom she and her husband are close into the conversation, challenge him on it. If that doesn't work, she should bring the elders in to challenge him on it, and then it should be brought before the church. But let's say at that point that husband says, you know what, we're going to leave, we're going to go to a new church. That, again, is a time when that wife should disobey him. 
he is refusing submission to authorities that have been placed over him. And she needs to submit to those authorities rather than his authority in that case. And she should say, no, we need to stay here so that, so that, he can, that his sin can be repented of and brought before him. So that's why I say yes. I say because what can happen in these cases is that a, a husband's actions can be viewed as sinful by a wife as a means of avoiding submission. And I think in a culture where feminism is pervasive, it can be something, sisters, that a wife does unintentionally. So I want, to, want you to consider these examples of how that might look. You might say, he's not making a decision quickly enough for me. He's not making it in the way that I want him to make it. You know what, I think it must be due to his, his laziness or it must be due to his passivity. And therefore, I'm going to just keep asking him about it, keep bringing it up over and over and over until he sees it my way. Or perhaps a husband has decided that it's time to take away a child's comfort item, a pacifier or a blanket or something like that. But the wife thinks, this child is not ready for that. It's, that's harsh. That's, that's not loving. So while he's away during the day, I'm going to give the child the comfort item because he's being, he's being harsh. Or similarly, a husband may ask to have dinner on the table at 530, and a, a wife might say, Man, he asked for dinner at 5.30, but he just doesn't know how hard my day is. If he knew, that's, that's, I, I can't do that. That's just such an unloving request. So, you know what, I'm going to get it on the table by 6.30 every night. So what can happen in these cases is that rather than submitting to her husband, a woman can actually come to a place where she is submitting to her own assessment of his motivations. So hear that again. She's submitting to her own assessment of his motivations. And what that really means is that's kind of a fancy way of saying she is submitting to her feelings, not to her husband. Ladies, this is not biblical submission. Your default should, your default should be to assume that your husband's motivations are not sinful, that they are righteous, that he is, see, knows that you are on a mission and that he is asking you to do things based upon that mission and then to cheerly, cheerfully obey him. So I would again encourage you, examine in light of these examples, how has your submission to your husband looked recently? Well, we know that this was the way that Sarah submitted to Abraham. One important question here that we need to answer, was Sarah a holy woman who hoped in God? As we look at this text, she laughs in disbelief when God makes a promise, and then when God confronts her, she lies about laughing. And yet, Peter calls her a holy woman who hoped in God. Hebrews 11, 11 says something similar. It says, by faith, even Sarah herself received ability to conceive even beyond the proper time of life since she considered him faithful who had promised. So were Peter and the author of Hebrews correct about Sarah? So one thing that is clear that we must understand is that the New Testament authors always interpret the Old Testament correctly. They are never incorrect in their interpretation. One of the catechism questions we say to the kids is, who wrote the Bible? Can any kid give me the answer to that? Who wrote the Bible? Go, just say it. Okay, holy men who were taught by the Holy Spirit. Amen. 
And, and this comes from 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 21, which says, Men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So when Peter is writing, it is the Holy Spirit who is writing this text. It is God who is writing. We must avoid, so as we look back and ask that question, was Sarah a holy woman who hoped in God? We have to also avoid antinomianism in how we examine the past. So I've heard before pastors, a, a pastor describe the Bible as this one book about a bunch of screw-ups and then this one guy who got it right. And we can think about it in that way at times, right? That Jesus was the good one and everyone else was just a total screw-up. Now, the Old Testament clearly documents sin in the lives of every person. Absolutely. They are, they are dependent upon the, the righteousness of Christ. Without that, they are hopeless. But, but, it also says that she had a real righteousness that she was a holy woman who hoped in God, that God actually worked that out in her life to accomplish it, that God changed her. Brothers and sisters, this is also what he does in us, is it not? Uh, um, I was talking to, to Wendell on Friday out at, the, out at the mill, and he was mentioning sometime, it seems several years ago, when he had become a Christian and he was in a church and he had a friend who invited him to an evangelism class, and he did not want to go. Now, when I look at Wendell, I see an evangelist through and through, so that what happens is that we actually become known for that thing that we saw as a failure in our lives. So Sarah now is, Sarah is called a holy woman who hoped in God when, when Peter points us to this place where it seems like she failed at both of those. But that's what he does in our lives is he changes those things in us that we think that this will never change. And he doesn't just change it. He makes it glorious. He gives us the opposite in it so that we are known for that thing on the opposite end. Brothers and sisters, isn't, isn't this what he has done in some of us? I, I know some of you women have a history of being feminists. And now you're known for your submission. I know that that's true. I know that some men here, including myself, were effeminate men in the past who did not lead, who were weak men. What does God do in us? He changes us. I mean, I'm preaching about Sarah calling Abraham Lord, and I would have hated that message 10 years ago. Some, some men in here would, would formerly have become, be called porn-enslaved men, and now these are husbands of one wife who rejoice in the wife of their youth. This is what the Lord does in us, brothers and sisters, and he continues doing it. So, so you may see yourself now as an angry dad, as a yelling mom, but that is not what you will be seen as looking back as the Lord works in you. He accomplishes this, these things in his people so that you'll be the mom who was known for her patience when that seems un, unimaginable now. Or you might be the bold evangelist who right now is just overwhelmed with fear of man. Brothers and sisters, this is what the Lord does. And this conduct, this moves us to the final point, which is the conduct of Sarah's daughters. It says, and you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. I think the past, test, te, past tense rendering, you have become, is preferred and, and more accurately conveys um, the verb tense than what the ESV says. Probably a lot of you have the ESV and I'm not knocking it, even though I used that quote from the translator. Um, the ESV rendering is you are. I think that the, the 
you have become uh, conveys it better. And then the following verbs in this sentence again indicate ongoing completed actions. So a better phrasing might be, you have become her children if you are doing what is right and not being frightened by any fear. Who are Sarah's children? We, the church, are the true people of God rather than the physical descendants of Abraham. This text conveys that to us. And we are joint heirs of the promises made to Abraham and Sarah. What are we to do with that little conjunction, if? Is that works righteousness? If? No. It is works that are produced as fruit of the imputed righteousness of Christ, truly transforming the life of a believer. I've talked a little bit about the antinomian tendency in our church today. And, and that tendency is to say that everything is grace. That, that any, any speaking of works is works righteousness. If we speak about works for the Christian, we are always talking about works righteousness. As if the grace of God is powerful enough to convert a man, but it is not powerful enough to produce fruit in him. That's what that is saying. It is a false gospel and it has condemned many to hell. On Friday, we were speaking to a man at the abortion clinic. He was a middle-aged man who had brought his teenage daughter in for an abortion. And this man was quoting scripture to us and essentially telling us, you keep the words of God off of me. He was quoting to us and saying, don't you dare judge me. I am a righteous man. He had heard John speaking to him for at least an hour. And we challenged this man. This man believes that he is going to heaven. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 says the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Right. So what this, this is, this antinomianism, it is niceness that is actually hatred. It is niceness to, to, to just let someone believe that they are going to heaven. I don't want to be mean to them. But it's hatred because then they march towards hell thinking that they are justified. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in The Cost of Discipleship describes the idea of cheap grace and commenting on this concept, I think Joe Boot has something really helpful to say. He says, Cheap grace is in fact a denial of the gospel because it justifies man in his sinning rather than justifying man from his sin, freeing him to be a man of righteousness in Jesus Christ. This grace is no grace at all. It is a grace that amounts to the justification of sin without the justification of the repentant sinner who departs from sin and from whom sin departs. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, absolution without personal confession. The truly converted believer will always produce fruit. Always. Jesus himself said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. I heard Vody Bauckham des describing the gospel, and he, he talked about um, grace alone, through faith alone, that we are saved by Christ alone, not by any works that we have done. And then the question he said is, so then we just go on and live any way we want to? Yes. Yes, because when you are his, he will change your want to. The true Christian is not the one who lives the way he doesn't want to. The true Christian is the one who has had his want to changed. That's why the if here is appropriate. Because a Christian sister's want to 
her desire has been changed. And it says, if you do what is right. So much like the woman in former times, this refers to living in a way that is pleasing to God and specifically points to the chaste and respectful behavior from verse 2. Further says, without being frightened by any fear. The ESV translates, translates this, if you do not fear anything that is frightening. And then the legacy standard says, not fearing any intimidation. That word is uh, toesis in Greek. And it's a word that occurs only one, point, one time in the New Testament. And um, the meaning here is fear. And in context, Peter is describing the fear that a, a wife might have of her unbelieving husband or perhaps of an imperfect believing husband. And just as an, as an aside, there's only those, everyone falls in those two categories. It's either unbeliever or imperfect believing husband. That's all there are. But there is clearly a broader application than that as well as the instruction is to not be frightened by any fear. Now, fear and anxiety are sins women are more prone to. Science actually upholds this. There is a 2016 meta-analysis, and a meta-analysis is where you just take a bunch of studies and clump them together and kind of look at, okay, what does it show if we look at all these different studies? Because if you look at one or the other, they might say the opposite. That happens in science. But you bring them together, and what does it show? It says that women were twice as likely as men to have an, an anxiety disorder. And this was something that persisted over time, and it, it was regardless of socioeconomic background, um, that this always was found to be the case. I mentioned that that word toasis does not occur in this, in, uh, anywhere else in the New Testament, but it does occur in the Septuagint, which is the Greek trans translation of um, the Old Testament from Hebrew. And it's in Proverbs 3, in verse 25, and I'm re I will read that and verse 26. It says, do not be afraid of sudden fear. There's the word toasis. Do not be afraid of sudden toasis. Nor of the onslaught of the wicked when it comes. For Yahweh will be your confidence and will keep your foot from being caught. Just as Sarah was a holy woman of old, so she's holy and she hopes in God, her daughters are women who do what is right and hope in Yahweh rather than fearing their circumstances. Ladies, our hope, your hope, is like the women of old, but how much better is it than theirs? I want you to consider all of the things as, as, as these promises were made to Sarah and Abraham. Consider all of the things had, that had yet to happen. This was before Isaac, the promised son, was born. It was before Abraham's, or, or before God providentially saved the line of Abraham by having Joseph be sold into slavery so that that line could be preserved. It was before Abraham's descendants would be enslaved and oppressed in Egypt for 400 years and later plunder the Egyptians during the Exodus. And this is something that God specifically promised in Genesis 15. It was before the entering of the promised land. And, and I was just looking today at, at, at Joshua as he is nearing his death. And he says, not one of the promises of God failed to come to pass. It was before they had seen all these promises. It was before the construction of the tabernacle, the construction of the temple, 
before the Babylonian exile and the return to Jerusalem and the rebuilding of the temple and all of these events, it was before many of the promises about a Messiah had been made. And it was before centuries and centuries of waiting and waiting and waiting for that promised Messiah. It was before God himself took on flesh by entering into the world as a baby boy, lived a perfect life of obedience to the law, bore the sins of his people, fulfilled all of God's promises, and then rose victorious over death and ascended to the right hand of the Father where he sat down and now reigns as king. Ladies, you look back on all of that on all of those fulfilled promises, and that should increase your hope, and that should stamp out fear. 1 Peter 1.13, uh, he said earlier in this, in this epistle, he said, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So practically, what does this mean? It means you don't have to fear the loss of a spouse. You don't have to fear the loss of a child. We heard today about this, the, the wonderful blessings of pregnancies. You don't have to fear that you are having trouble getting pregnant while other people around you are not having that struggle. You don't have to fear the loss of your own health. Why? Because God says he will never leave us or forsake us. He says that he will be with us always to the end of the age. And he promises that he is working all things together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Ladies, it means you don't have to fear indwelling sin, that you see that you continue to fight and you feel like you fail. Because you, if you are in Christ, you are predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Do you know that? That he has promised that, that those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That is what he is doing, and he will complete his good work in you means you don't have to fear the policies and decrees of wicked rulers or a culture in rebellion against the image of God in so many different ways. You don't have to fear the station he has given you in this battle. I mentioned earlier that God promised Abraham a people, a land, and the gates of his enemies. Church, has he promised us less than that? I love the name of our church, Christ the King. And in our current catechism, we haven't quite gotten there, um, but question 24 says this, how does Christ execute the office of a king? Christ executes the office of a king in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. That is who Christ the king is, brothers and sisters. Psalm 110.1, you're probably familiar with this verse. It's the most quoted verse in the Old Testament, from the New Testament, it was one of Jesus' favorites. Yahweh says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Jesus says in Matthew 16, 18, that, the, that he will build his church and that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now remember, gates are defensive. That means church is advancing and the gates of hell will not prevail. Christ is in the process of conquering his enemies and putting them under his feet. He has tasked us, his church, with advancing against the gates of the enemy. Like Sarah, you, her daughters, serve this mission often by your simple 
and cheerful acts of obedience to your husband. Rejoice in that, sister. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. God, I thank you that, that you have given each of us a station in this mission that you are accomplishing. Jesus, that you are king and you are putting your enemies under your feet. Thank you so much, Lord, that we get to participate in that, that we get to see your victories, that we get to cling to hope, knowing, Lord, that you are accomplishing your purposes in spite of what we see around us. God, would you help us to cling to Christ, to cling to that hope? Would you help these ladies, these sisters, to hope in you, Lord, when submission is difficult? Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that it doesn't return void, just as I said in my prayer at the beginning, Lord, you always accomplish your purposes. God, thank you for a church that will, will faithfully proclaim every aspect of this word and won't avoid any of it, God. I pray that you would use this word, that you would accomplish your purposes, that you would strengthen our body through the strengthening of your sisters, our, of our sisters, Lord. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.